Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 30th episode of Career Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Casey Curran. He's a creator of kinetic sculptures and installations from Seattle, USA. Um, with that out of the way, could you please give us a little introduction on how you got into visual arts and design? Yeah, um, I mean, it's I've always been interested in art. It started as a child. Um, I played with wire a lot. I drew a lot. I stuck things together a lot, um, always doing something creative to keep myself entertained. Um, but I didn't start getting into kinetics until high school when my teacher had showed the class a video on Alexander Calder, who's, um, I believe, a modernist um, a sculptor. He, like, invented uh, mobiles, so those little things that hang above kids' cribs. Uh, so he did those and yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. As soon as I saw that, uh, the whole, my whole world shifted and then everything started becoming, uh, kinetic. Oh, pretty interesting. And well, were you originally studying art and design or you were pursuing another career path? No, I, um, I, I think I knew at a pretty young age that art is what I wanted to do. Um, I couldn't really figure out if I was good at anything else. So I was like, let's just keep doing art. Um, and I got a lot of encouragement from the people around me. So kind of always going forward, uh, and pushing against that. Although my, uh, I was always said that or told growing up, like, you better find a second career, which is, I think, something that a lot of artists hear from family, relatives, and friends. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a common theme, you know, even, uh, like, I, I don't think just in USA, like, all around the world in general, where people usually aren't that supportive of, like, you know, their, um, the younger member of their family or even their kids to follow art because they usually want that, you know, the stable route, you know, the financially stable route, you know, and I mean, that's kind mm-hmm. of understandable, like a relatable issue. <laughs> um, so how does, oh, sorry, I wrote the wrong question. Oh, what is your main branch of design that you're focusing on? Of course, in the introduction, I already mentioned that you work on kinetic sculptures and in- installations and What's the main branch of design you're focusing on? Like, would you go in more in depth? Depth, and also tell us about your experience from the start of it until now. Yeah. So, I mean, I've done a lot of different things um, since graduating college. Maybe uh, it's over a decade now. I graduated in 2006, um, and with a focus on showing in galleries. Um, just regular sculptures. Uh, and I showed, showed regularly at least once a year with a solo show in galleries. Um, What was the question? Um, yeah. Where did everything start? Yeah, so 
I, I graduated about, I graduated in 2006 and then, you know, with a focus on, or at least this idea that I would be showing all my work in galleries and trying to make my living doing that. Um, I wasn't dissuaded from that because I did start showing in galleries and I was having solo shows at least once a year, but it's really hard to make a living doing that because um, you're spending all your time working towards this one show and then, you know, it, because all my pieces take so long to make, um, to even trying to produce a 12-piece show in one gallery, that's one piece a month. And that's really cranking it out every single day. But after after that, and not really after that, but it, it kind of started picking up steam when I um, was doing some public exhibition, not public exhibitions, but public commissions for uh, buildings uh, here in Seattle. So my scale of work popped up. It got larger, more involved. I brought in um, some digital experts where I could... Um, or programmers where I could actually start activating the space. Like one of the first um, large public uh, commissions I did was uh, for a building um, in partnership with Skanska Architects where they designed a green building and they wanted to have a sculpture that would somehow tell the people inhabiting that building what um, the energy usage of that building was. So kind of like this, um, physical barometer for the energy goals of the building. And so I created this big court, court and steel, uh, wall with all these cracks running through it. And then these brass flowers, like wildflowers kind of pushing out through these cracks and they would open and close in time with the energy goals of the building. And I mean, that was something I wouldn't have been able to do without like bumping up and bringing in a collaborator into uh, the work. And then from there, I got a few more public commissions or public private commissions. And also while all that was going on, I was working with a theater company um, doing these really involved kind of, um, uh, I guess you could say like, avant-garde in the most like pretentious sense of the word of avant-garde like they were really difficult shows to watch but i love them i love them so much uh real dark but also beautiful and i think uh working with the director and working with these groups of people it really informed how i see space and how i see like the potential of work um beyond just the wall um and then you know, I, I work at a college right now as the studio tech. So I've been using the college's sculpture lab as pretty much my like de facto studio. So I have all the toys for free, um, laser cutting. We're about to do a major remodel uh, and that we'll be getting some full scale CNC routing and plasma cutting. So mm, pretty very interesting. But that. if I'm not mistaken, I actually watched one uh, like a three minute video of from an Instagram page about you, like a you know mini interview kind of. I think it was Glowforge or something. I'm sure. the name of the page. I don't quite remember. And one of the things that stuck yes. to me, you said that you prefer like cold methods, like you don't really prefer like welding and. 
No, no. Yeah, that video was from like uh, 2014. So I'm not. So it's kind of interesting. I when I was in college, I knew that I wasn't going to have a space for years, for years and years and years to be able to weld or do some of these larger industrial techniques that you see some artists use. So I kind of like narrowed my focus down into like, um, these very specific kind of just sewing the metal together or twisting the metal together. So I didn't have to worry about, um, all the like getting an oxygen tank and having a fire in my apartment, which I didn't, I, I just couldn't have. Um, so I made that choice early on. Uh, I can weld. I actually teach welding now a little bit, uh, but it's not, it's too robust for what I'm trying to do. I mean, not to say that I won't use it in the future. It is like a skill to put in your back pocket. Uh, I think a lot of art making is about finding a new skill or a new technique, um, just experimenting, doing things wrong is really important because in that wrongness, you can might, you might be able to find, um, some type of, uh, repeatable beauty that you can then use in your own works that maybe somebody else hasn't yet. Um, and so I put those in my back pockets and use them later. Awesome. And I mean, I wanted to mention that because you, you were, because I heard that like when I was doing a background check on you about like, you don't prefer, like, you know, you prefer cold methods and you were talking about CNC and laser cutting. I was like, Hmm, isn't that, I don't think that's really cold. You know, that that's right. No, yeah. I've, uh, I've bumped up. I've actually got myself a Glowforge. Uh, I just ordered it the other day. There's uh, all the, the boxes and everything. Awesome. It's pretty big. Um, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gotten it unless I think it's like the idea is I don't use them if I can't reliably use them. Right. Right now I'm in a house, uh, top floor of a house. There's no buildings around me. I can vent out the window. Mm, yeah. I couldn't do that in an apartment. Um, so I, it's, uh, have you ever heard, um, never mind. That's kind of like a weird segue, but yeah, like the color blue wasn't really in the lexicon until we were able to, um, reliably use or reliably produce and use that color. So if you go back into Homer's odyssey, or, or the Odyssey, like he doesn't write about blue at all. He talks about um, the wine red sea or even like children. There was like some guy who had a kid who also like studied color. And for the longest time, he tried not saying blue or like mentioned blue in front of his child. And then like one day he was like, could you tell me what color the sky is? And the kid's mm -hmm. like, it's white, you know? And there's a really interesting podcast about this. Do you ever listen to um, um, I heard about it, but Radio Lab? No, actually, I haven't listened to it. it it's, yeah, it's a really great one. Um, but they do uh, kind of science-y, uh, weird kind of things uh, regarding those. Kind of like, like Mythbusters, right? Re regarding those types of... Uh -huh. Yeah, a little bit, but they're not, but not so much. It's, uh, yeah, I In guess you sense, could say it's yeah, parallel to Mythbusters mm -hmm. a little. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's talking about it, you, they usually take a topic, one topic a week, and they kind of pull it apart. Like, what is sleep, or what is color, or what are these things, and then they kind of deep dive into it. Um, but anyway, back to um, the reliability of your tools. If I didn't have the reliability of the tool, I figure mm. out some other way to use. Interesting. The, the um, now let's go to the next question. How does your design process usually go anytime you want to start working on a design project, whether it be maybe the design project project is just I don't know designing a headpiece like you did for which we, which we're going to get into later in the episode, or just any project. <laughs> Yeah, um, I usually start with, I need, I don't know how to um, design in the computer uh, three-dimensionally. So I'm constantly grabbing pieces of paper, folding them up, twisting them around, and like start with really simple physical models to either find the silhouette of the shape that I want or the kinetic motion that I want. And then uh, start refining it a little bit. I'll do like, uh, I use Illustrator a lot um, because that program, you know, it just makes things flat. I can cut it out super simple uh, with the laser cutter. And then um, I just kind of jump from there. I mean, it's difficult because every project kind of starts in an interesting place. I mean, when you're trying to ideate your concepts, you know, where do those, where do these ideas come from? Um, when I'm just trying to think of like a good example of like a design process, I guess like, I mean, we can jump to the Iris piece, uh, mm-hmm. cause that's like a good example. Um, I was contacted by Iris Van Herpen, um, back in 2019, mm-hmm at around September and we started developing this, this kinetic headpiece for the Paris fashion week. And, uh, I, and you could see on the Instagram, I do have that one kind of silhouette of, um, kind of this fan wrapping around my head in a, um, horizontal, uh, configuration. And that was the silhouette that I wanted to try and produce for these uh, these crowns. And it went through a lot of iterations, uh, several different motors. I actually have four different prototypes before I finally got to the final one. I actually missed the deadline for the 2020 show. Um, so those headpieces were originally supposed to be in um, her Sensory Seas exhibition, but uh, we neither of us were happy with um, how the motion was going. I have a I have an acrylic model, I have a stainless steel model, I have a model that we tried painting white, and none of those worked. None of the movements were either too shuddery and didn't move with the fluidity that they needed to have. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of the design iterations and a lot of the, um, coming to, um, functional, uh, elements of the designs, it's just whittling away, um, or trying to find the correct material. Um, what was different about this, uh, this, this last, 
design for the crowns was I started using this white material called Duralar, which is a polyester drawing paper made by graphics. And it has a natural spring to it. And so I was able to utilize that spring um, to help pull the feathers down and to kind of like create tension on the um, threads that weave through the crown as they go up. So it didn't have that stutter that some of the other models had. And um, it's just, it was a slight eureka, eureka moment as I was um, half asleep, you know. I think solutions do come when you're in kind of those liminal states between awake and asleep. You're in the, you're in the uh, flow zone, basically. I usually find answers there. Yeah, but I'm like in bed kind of sleeping yeah, or sometimes trying those to take ideas a nap. Hit us when we're in the flow, like for example, people explain sometimes when they're running outside or they're taking a shower. Or I think it was in the journals of Leonardo da Vinci that he said that sometimes, a lot of times, his big ideas came to him when, for example, he was laying down and there was like a light of the candle reflecting on the ceiling. And it, and it was, the, of course, the candle of the wind yeah. just made the light, you know, just wiggle a bit. And he would just get mesmerized by that motion. And, mm -hmm. you know, his brain would go on autopilot and, you know, boom, the ideas just came to him. The, solutions to the problems he had while designing like it you know it's in a sense it's like that you know when you get in the flow kind of it's basically the concept yeah. of meditation yeah, you know that's like what that. you try to manually do with meditation yeah yeah i mean there's i think that's the healthiest way to do it you know just kind of like mm -hmm. shutting off one part of your brain and letting the other part go i know that there's been desperate times where i'm like well maybe i can work myself into a manic state and like come up with an idea so it's like i won't i'll like not sleep uh smoke too many cigarettes and mm -hmm. like have a ton of coffee and like just kind of be running around my apartment being like i have to have an idea come to me now <laughs> that's only worked once so yeah, i don't do that that's anymore. not very uh... <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't help. And, I mean, <laughs> no, because I, I don't used to do the it. same a lot. I I used to be like extremely addicted to caffeine, uh, like energy mm -hmm. drinks, coffee, uh, you name it. Mm -hmm. And like it, it would came to a point that mm -hmm. my sleep schedule was so bad, like it happens, like it still happens. Like it even happened like a month ago. Like I would just sleep for every two days. Mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't and, and here yes, oh, no. it is. and it wasn't like <laughs> and it wasn't like that i was tired and all the time like i was hyper ever you know i was sharp you know like i snorted a line of cocaine but i didn't mm -hmm. i just mm -hmm. <laughs> my brain was like that like i honestly like the most extreme <laughs> case of it was last year in spring i think not the 2020 spring i mean like uh -huh. the 2019 um right like i, I remember yeah. one morning i didn't I was I hadn't I haven't slept for a day and in the morning of the night that I should be sleeping it was 7 a.m. and I was bored and I just opened up my Strava app I don't know if you know it, it's for running and basically cycling and I just turned mm -hmm. it on and it started to run like for seven kilometers and went back and it was still sharp you know like you know so, yeah it was so bad oh my god <laughs> but I don't recommend it to everyone sleep is super important um yeah, and yeah, yeah just increase. Oh, I mean, I get awesome. eight hours eight, eight sleep hours now, so awesome. some yeah, people that's my barely thing. get even six hours. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 
I so, can't say, function off at six hours. I, I should at least have eight hours. <laughs> and uh, well, let's go to the next question. <laughs> um, could you tell us about your experience okay. of the first installation you ever made and also the first exhi- exhibition you held as well? Like, how were the feelings? Like, how was your experience? Were there any mistakes involved? You know, mm-hmm. any funny stories about those? Um, well, I mean, my college BFA show, I don't know, that was kind of the first exhibition. Um, and that was received really well. Um, I had, I don't really have any images of it, at least no good images of it. Uh, but I think the main piece that I had in that show, uh, it really, I think it kind of like, it really got a lot of people excited about the work that I would eventually do. Um, I had, uh, I made a full size, life size, uh, human skeleton out of wire, and I built a box to go around it, like the frame of a box. And there was a motor that would propel this life-size skeleton to walk. And then in its hand, it had another box with another skeleton in it. And the large skeleton, the life-size one, was turning a crank, also all hooked up to this one motor. So the life-size one was turning a crank for the second-size skeleton. And then the second-size skeleton was also walking. And in its hand, it had a third tiny skeleton inside of another box. And it was turning the crank for that. So it was kind of like this fractal, like, shrinking down of, like, the same skeleton walking and walking and walking and I thought that was um, that was a really good piece maybe one day I'll revisit it somewhere somehow but um, not yet not yet I've done that before where you go back in time and like look at a piece that you made and if it wasn't made correctly revisit it now with the idea that I'm gonna finally complete that idea or produce the idea as as close to what was inside my head originally but you just didn't have like the vocabulary or the technical knowledge to really produce it and so yeah um i i think that was the main one i mean i've had a lot of uh follies in the art making process because you know uh, my work is kinetic and so if one thing is off a little bit you know it the whole machine breaks down. I've had nightmare scenarios where a gear gets jammed and it destroys it. So I have to remake that whole thing. Uh, I've gone back to um, a few of my um, uh, public works and had to repair those just because of like, you know, either user error. There was, I did a, I did a sculpture in another state this was a nightmare did a sculpture in another state that was you know we had a week to install it install it it was in this hospital it was beautiful it worked it was like this big undulating acrylic and um, aluminum sculpture that had um diffraction grating film in um in the aluminum or not in the aluminum in the acrylic and so when light passed through it it kind of cast these um these subtle rainbows throughout the entire lobby of this uh, hospital and so it was it was really beautiful and subtle and 
whatnot. But in my contract, I specifically stipulated, you know, this thing can't be running all day. It needs time for the motor to cool down. It, like it needs to follow these steps. And lo and behold, they didn't ever install the timer. And I told them to, even after I saw like, hey, this switch needs to be on a timer. It can't be left on. And because the machine kind of moved very slowly, maybe like four RPM. So like one full revolution every minute um, or four revolutions every minute. Sorry. Um it wasn't readily noticeable that it was on, but what ended up happening was they had left it on for almost a week and yeah, like just the course. motor burnt out. It just should not have been on. And then of course they're like, well, you need to come and fix it. I'm like, listen, this is the contract and you didn't follow the contract. So no, I'll send you another motor because I want it to work, but I'm not flying out there to fix it. So everybody needs to read I mean, their it, contracts. Like, Contract is that like it's kind of common sense when the creator of work says that it needs, I mean, not you don't even need the creator to tell it to you, like, you shouldn't. Motors just overheat, I mean, that's a fact. I mean, uh, it's just the obvious, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, actually, I had a couple of questions while I was going through your stuff. Um, about your artworks and I checked your website you had like a couple of exhibitions now let me bring them up again um one of them I just updated some of the uh, things so it might be a little weird uh, I just um, updated some of the website so I don't know no, if no, I broke no, actually it's fine the user interface in is it. not like you or anything um I want to uh, okay. I want you to explain the story behind the artworks you made for two of your exhibitions. One of them is uh, mm-hmm. well. Let's go through them one by one. First, let's start by Parable of Gravity. <laughs> Correct. <Okay. laughs> Tell us the story behind yeah. it, and uh-huh. in general, anything we should know. Sure, sure. I mean, that's the one that's closest to the front of my mind right now. So, um, Parable Beck Gravity was, you know, in a lot of my work, I'm always kind of thinking, well, I don't know if it's the same for other artists, but I always kind of have this hidden narrative. And it maybe it might not even be hidden, hidden but it's in the back of my mind. And for this show, I... Um, I've always been kind of not always but like in the back of my mind I'm always dealing with these existential dreads that we have you know I read the news all the time I'm constantly listening to NPR and there's a lot of fear that we hear and it just kind of made me think like well Christ everything's collapsing and um, in 2019 I went to Barcelona with my partner and we were we stayed in the Gothic quarter, and we're looking at all these cathedrals, and uh, it just kind of struck me that here are these buildings that get constructed in one person's lifetime, and then are finished in another. So it's like this idea of a century project, you know this this longer this longer plan, and what are the and what 
makes a culture, a society, a subset of people able to have that type of resiliency in the face of time and change to produce um, this massive undertaking. And so for me, um, you're not um, for me, uh, parable of gravity is this, um, it's kind of like this signpost that, Hey, you know, things are collapsing. Uh, but we have this chance, I mean, and the door is closing, it feels like to possibly fix or mitigate the worst of it. And, you know, that's that's one aspect of it. In the exhibition, you can see this large kind of um, steel or it's an aluminum structure with all these tessellated triangles. And that was that specific piece was taken from um, an asteroid, Gaspera 951, uh, which was photographed by the Galileo spacecraft on its way to Jupiter. And it's actually the first photograph of an asteroid, a close-up photograph of an asteroid that we've ever had. And that was in 1991. So it feels like that wasn't really that long ago um, for me since I was born in 81. Um, But it was like this very small signpost or like this footnote in um, humanity's history on this planet and all the history that it took to get this tiny ish little uh device on a rocket flung into the void and somehow like pass this giant mountain just floating in the middle of nothing on its way to another like giant thing and so i I thought that was incredible and uh what in the tessellation of the sculpture i placed a rose window or at least the illusion of a rose window. And so for me, when you're talking about deep time humanity and like our psychological relationships with nature and how we deal with them, um, I wanted to incorporate both this science aspect of it, um, the part of humanity that pulls apart reality and wants to investigate it. And then this other part of humanity that, um, that, tries and create answers from the void. And so, and I always think back to like pre-man, not pre-man, sorry, like pre-industrial civilization before we were able to like make gas lamps and every single night was pitch black if there was no moon. And just imagine like the Milky Way just just strung out above your head. And like, how could you not think that there was some great beyond? And but then as soon as the enlightenment comes and we start peeling it apart and we're like, oh, shit, maybe the earth does, uh, maybe the earth does revolve around the sun. And that was a huge, a huge shift in like the American or not the American in the human like psyche regarding like our place in the universe. And I, I just found that that was really important. And so in the exhibition, I think that we do have to have this kind of greater shift in our perspective of where we are on this planet and what are what resources we have left um and you know i and not to ramble on too much but i go back and i think about mass extinctions on the planet and there's been five mass extinctions uh notable mass extinctions but one of them that i like to point to is uh 
uh, one of the first ones, all when uh, the o- when Earth was basically one big giant ocean and Pangea was a thing, um, and our oceans kind of turned into this green soup with plankton, right? And so it was sucking in all the CO2 and then belching out oxygen, and oxygen is a cooling gas. And so what happened was the Earth plunged into this snowball effect. It was like the first greatest ice age. Um, and that killed off all the plankton. But what it did was it seeded our atmosphere. It changed the chemistry of our atmosphere and gave us the amount of oxygen that we have now, which allowed the next step in our evolution. And so when you walk into the parable of gravity exhibition, there's these disintegrating towers and then all these flowers growing from that. And so it's kind of like, even though we may be gone in the future, there will be something that happens next. And I, it's, um, it's arrogant almost to think that we'll always be here. And, but I would love to try and have us always be here. If not, um, only for the reason to like, at least give the universe some consciousness for the short period of time that we're here. All right. And by the way, for anyone who's wondering the (laughs) exhibition for, if you're near, is it being held in Seattle? Yeah, for anyone who's near in Seattle yeah. or, you know, yes. living in nearby states, I mean, of course, you can, the, yeah, the exhibition will be still up and running until April 17th of this year. So, you know, do, you know, if you're interested, do definitely try to check it out. And the next one we were supposed to talk about is Escaping Earth, if I'm not mistaken. Let me check. Yes, Escaping Earth. Um, yeah. I have two, aside from the story behind it, I also had two specific questions about this, which first, I mean, of course, please do go ahead and let us know the story behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Escaping Earth, it's kind of that exhibition was kind of my precursor for Parable of Gravity. Um, It was down in Houston um, at the Houston Center for Contemporary Craft. And it was uh, the first time I was able to display that large tessellated asteroid. I lovingly refer to it as my space potato um because it does look like a potato um and also the hanging figure i've titled both these pieces individually the hanging figure um is uh we spoke like this to remember and the the asteroid is i've titled it anchor of janus because it's um janus is this greek god of um, beginnings and endings transition time things like that you'd often see the two-faced god above doorways um, before you're entering, it's like mm-hmm. beginning of war, ending of war, things like that. Um, and I mean, I guess, I guess in the escaping earth, a lot of the things in that exhibition were leading into the parable of gravity. I have some paintings of some asteroids that I had done. There's actually a painting of the Gaspar 951 asteroid in that show. Uh, I had, uh, I made the foundation of a home, uh, out of, um, these Himalayan salt bricks and then, uh, sculpted wooden wheat growing out of it. I called it, uh, Jericho, which I don't know if that's the best title for it, but what I wanted to do with that was kind of allude to this, um, to this deeper sense of like 
how we've taken land and um, almost sowed it with, um, I don't know. Like, have you ever heard of the term, like, to, yes. to salt yes. the earth? Yeah, so it came about kind of around in the Middle Ages, and people would, like, the idea was, oh, yeah, a conquering army comes through your town, and then they salt your field so you can't grow any more crops. But salt was too expensive back then, so it wasn't actually happening. Um, but there was this ritual that where around the perimeter of a field, you would like salt it a little bit, you know, kind of making this ring, kind of claiming it as like, this is now ours. Um, and so I kind of wanted to allude to that with the foundation, this crumbling foundation in uh, Jericho. Um, and just what what are the implications of like when we claim a piece of the earth as our own and then we when we have generation after generation after generation living on the bones of the people that came before them um what how do we um how do we care for or care for that land like do we take up the ownership or custodialship of that of that space um and then some of the other pieces in the exhibition were more like older work. This was the first like large exhibition that I've done, a solo exhibition that I've done um, in a space. And so it was a little, so I think the concepts were a little disjointed, um, but I do think everything fed into each other because I was showing work from all the way back from like 2010 to 2020. So there was kind of like this weaving in and out of past ideas and future ideas. So it was a little bit more difficult to kind of put a pin in what I was pointing at. Actually, my two yeah. questions got answered. One of That's them was that. about um, the same figure that you had in Parable of Gravity, which you already said it's kind of like the precursor to that. Um, and my other question was about the installation of the Himalayan salt bricks and the wheat strands, which, you know, I kind of, I got my answer. Yeah. So, um, all right. The next, yeah, the next good, thing I want to ask you about is you did a series of um, works with, if I'm not mistaken, with Iris Van Herpen. And she's uh, for, for, Mm -hmm. Anyone who's uh, curious, she's uh, she's like one of the most famous fashion designers right now in a very avant-garde style, trying to involve technology in her works. And actually, I want, like, I saw on her um, website, the series is called Roots of Bur Rebirth. I want you to talk talk mm -hmm. about that a bit, and also, like in one of her posts, also she even mentioned you. You designed a headpiece for one of her works. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I'm gonna show it later in the edited version of the podcast. I mean, any, anything I'm talking about right now, or we're talking about, I'm gonna edit it later, so everyone knows what they're talking about. Um, so yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah, um, well, it's interesting. Like I was kind of saying before, the collaboration started last year or two years ago in 2019 and missed the deadline for Sensory Seas, the um, 
And so I was actually building these with this kind of underlying notion that um, the sensory seas exhibition is beautiful. So is the, so is this roots of rebirth. But um, I was building these kind of with the idea that there's these, these stingrays or kind of like these models were just flowing down the runway um, kind of being pushed or guided by these. I wasn't, um, privy to the roots of rebirth. Uh, I didn't under, I didn't know that that was the direction that, uh, that the, the collection was going to take. Um, I think it's beautiful. Uh, I don't, I, I, I don't think that like it, um, mm, I don't know how to describe it. I just, it was, when, when I was collaborating with Iris, there was, there was like, I wasn't quite always privy to all the information. And so I was kind of working in this, um, working in this space where I had a freedom to kind of like push whatever boundaries that I could push. And, um, the first headpiece that I did, it was more, it was this larger feather, piece that sat on i think the model's name is natalia or something um, she's very famous um yeah i, I don't that's know. it i mean i just i'm just reading her at and it's just not not a supernova which it's probably natalie or something yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah um so that was the first one and then and then like both ears and me and the whole team were super excited about that like we finally got a functioning headpiece to work and so we kind of talked a little bit about the best way to do the next one and then it was she was like bring it in a little bit and kind of have these curly things actually i did the curly thing but it doesn't matter anyway so we talked a little bit and then like we came back and forth with some designs and had the second piece. Um, and so the mechanism is basically the same for the first as the second, but it did take a little bit more editing and balancing of each one of these lifting and falling, um, elements. And now if you, if you want to know a, a super secret, but it's not that secret, uh, who knows if it'll actually work. Cause the first time we missed the deadline because I just couldn't get the mechanics working, but, uh, we're going to be producing, um, a dress for spring, which I'm excited for. Yeah. You're okay. Yeah. No, you know, when water just jumps <laughs> out, you're... <laughs> At the time, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. good. So you were saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're going to be producing a dress for spring. So hopefully hopefully that is functional and and beautiful. Because I, I don't think either of us want something yeah, half-ass walking down the runway. These things do take time. Yeah, they take time. They take a lot of um, balance a lot of iterations. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I just got that Glowforge so I can help produce like these things at a faster pace. True. Scaling up the work. <laughs> and oh, the last thing about the section I want to ask you is um I think um yeah, 
I mean, in your bio, it says make reservations with at MadArt Seattle. And also in the MadArt Seattle bio, it says MadArt is a contemporary arts organization that supports artists to create new installation-based work that expands their professional practice now. Uh, my main question is, how does exactly um, MadArt Seattle organizations support an artist? Like, do they provide material like or equipment? Like, I'm kind of confused about that. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's 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 pretty unique as a uh, organization. Um, there, you know, like most organizations, there is there needs large organizations like this. There needs to be some funding behind it, and this is it's private um, actually. So the main um, push or the main the main um the owner the director of mad art uh allison milliman has been a great supporter of the arts here in seattle she started mm, i want to say 2009 2008 doing these smaller kind of community-centered projects um down kind of by the waterfront here in seattle and she would bring in maybe 10, 20 artists, give them like a couple thousand dollars to do like these installations that would be hosted in these spaces over the summer. In 2010, I worked with uh, her and some other artists to do these installations in parks. There's this one, the one that I did was, it's unlike any other piece that I did, but it was definitely, it had this theatrical element, whereas this large disc, uh, this grass disc, kind of boring, but um, the main reason why I made that disc was it was kind of th that whole park was on top of a reservoir. So there was this understructure. And so I wanted to expose the understructure. So there's this um, wooden oblique cone underneath the grass. Um, and so it's just this big disc kind of tilted on its side. And just and, and it was just so like serendipitous that my friend happened to be walking by with a water watering can. And I was just like, hey, you need to give me that watering can. And he's like, okay. And so we put the watering can on the sculpture and there's a water feature, maybe, I don't know, 10, 20 yards away from it. And the sculpture existed in the park in the summer during the hottest months in Seattle. And the community kind of took ownership of it. And so they were taking this water can from the sculpture, walking it over to the fountain, filling it up, and then going back to the sculpture and keeping it watered throughout the whole summer. And it became almost this performative uh, thing where, you know, if you're not on the sculpture, you would be on this little hill over here watching the people on the sculpture doing this thing or whatever they were doing. It was really, it was fascinating. It was like this kind of um, framing of mundane life and kind of this theatrical way. I, I don't know how else to describe it. I've never done anything like it and I, that's fine, but I'm really happy with that piece. Subtle beauty in it. Um, no, it's fine. It's I'm fine. sorry, I went on a tangent. <laughs> um, the question was, what how was does exactly Mad Art Seattle um, supports artists? Ah, yes. Yeah. Um, they mm -hmm. support artists through funding. 
um, the the space itself, the mad art, uh, they will throw weddings or other kinds of events in the space. Actually, during the opening of Parable of Gravity, I was talking with a couple and they want to have a wedding in that space. And I'm like, this is a dark exhibition. Like, are you sure? But That's it's true. also really beautiful. So I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So maybe somebody will have some weddings in the middle of my sculpture, which I'm fine with letting it go and yeah. being and having it be that. And we're going to probably have some dancers come into the space and film some beautiful dance. So, yeah, yeah, true. you know, it's a stage. They, it's a they stage. just have free stage props for their, you know, wedding. So <laughs> it's a win-win. Um, yeah. So the next <laughs> question is, who are your favorite artists and designers that have inspired you the most? Uh, I'm going to ruin both these names. Um, Dana Al-Hadid, I think, is her name, and David Ahmed. Or, it's pronounced Ahmed, um, in, uh, I think. Gosh. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, okay. He's a Canadian artist. I don't know where oh, Dana is uh, from. I, I'm sorry for interrupting, um, but I think well, maybe... If the guy is no, like no, um, biracial, maybe it's Dana. But if not, maybe because we have a name Donna in Farsi and Arabic, maybe that's his name. I don't know. Yeah. Well, one's a guy and one's yeah, a girl. I'm Donna could be a girl name too. Donna. Dana. I don't. I can send you links to them so you can pronounce them. But um, those two artists I really like. Um, there's some other kinetic artists like Arthur Ganson. I got a lot of inspiration from his kinetic sculptures are so complicated. I could never reproduce them. I could stare at them for hours and kind of figure out how they work. But, um, yeah, I was, I could never reproduce it, but they were gorgeous. Very big inspiration to, to kind of like keep pushing the mechanics behind each piece um, there's local artists here in Seattle that I found a lot of inspiration from Gala Bent, who was actually a teacher at the college. I don't think she knows like how much her work was really inspiring for me. Like I remember seeing some of her paintings and I was like, well, I need to turn that into a sculpture. Um, I worked as an artist assistant with Katie Stone. Um, and that was a huge influence on teaching me how to scale up my work. Uh, I think it's really important if uh, if students post college can get um, internships with working artists that are working at a large scale. Um, it's super helpful for them, I think, if they're willing to keep an open mind and just kind of listen and kind of learn as they're going. Um, uh, Mandy Greer is another one. She's a textile artist. And I don't think so much like I don't use textiles in my work, but I think the amount of um, the way that her pieces look that are stitched together, they're very um, – I always look at them as kind of like this horror vacuum of like texture and um, I don't know. Mm. They're just really gorgeous, and I guess. Oh, sorry. Um, oh, that's sorry. I thought you wouldn't finish. That's it. Um, <laughs> that's it. All right. So, and speaking of mediums, what mediums do you mostly work in and why? Um, it's interesting. I, th I feel like I'm, 
I mean, I guess Wire would be the number one. It's the closest to, it's what I use the most, but I haven't used any Wire in about a year. I think the way that I work is um, I find a new material and I uh, go about through this period, this R&D period where I'm trying to push the limits of what it can do or what how it could be used in a piece of art. And I mean, right now I'm using mostly laser cut Duralar and acrylic um, and then just some like brass wire and little motors. You know, I, I, I don't I wouldn't limit myself to one material. Yeah, I wouldn't limit myself to one material. It's whatever the Sounds occasion like calls for. Yes. Monochromatic is good, though. And uh, well, next question is, what is the main subject of your artworks and what made them interesting to you? Uh, I think, I think, um, on a broader scope, I think the simplest way to say it is, um, humanity's psychological relationship with nature and nature in the sense of not like a garden, but nature in the sense that if I have a child and I'm living out in the woods, a bear is very much likely going to eat my Mm. child like that kind of nature, like the real nature, not this, uh, not this, um, curated nature that we often see and talk about because nature is, does not give a shit about us. It does not care. It does what it does. It's this force. Um, and I think that we as people have been doing as much as we can to negate that. I mean, we have all these cultural prosthetics. I mean, we live in houses, we have clothes, we have all these comforts, hot water. We've spent, I guess, hundreds of years, actually, because we're not really that old, um, making these innovations to kind of make ourselves more comfortable in our environments. And I think that, I mean, I wouldn't ever give any of those up, but I think it is in direct antithesis of what nature is. And so I think that that's like a really interesting, like that liminal space between what our ideas of nature are and what nature actually All right. is. And uh, what technologies and softwares do you mostly use for your works? And I mean, by softwares, I mean, or technologies, I mean, it could be paper, pencil, even, you know, just what tools do you use for the whole design process? That's what I'm trying to mm-hmm. get to. Yeah. So uh, when I start when I start um, producing work for a new series, I usually just kind of cut out paper, figure out the silhouettes. Um, and then from there, I would jump into either laser cutting, um, refining it in Illustrator on the computer. Um, yeah, those, are, I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. Before, uh, I would just be building very tiny little kinetic um, models, I would call them movement sketches, um, which were usually not beautiful, but they would at least get the idea across. So then I could iterate on it and refine it to become used in a piece of art. All right. And um, any advice and tips for a good portfolio and resume for someone who wants to get into like making, be, be, becoming an artist in your field, basically? 
Uh, advice. Uh, well, keep working. Um, always move forward with your designs. I don't have very good advice because I don't even know how I'm where I'm at right now. Um, I, I think it's a confluence of events. If you keep working towards your visions and your ideas, either regarding new compositions or uh, activation devices, uh, and even though they might fail the first time, you have to keep working on it. Like with the Iris headpieces, I was ready to throw every single one of them at the wall because they just weren't working and it was super disappointing. Um, thank God I was contacted again the next year so we could revisit them. Um, and, you know, the first crack at it, I was able to get it functioning again. So I think um, there's this term in uh, education where we call it grit. And it's like this metric of being able to like keep working at the problem until you solve it. That is that is the most advice that I can give. Get like muster up yeah, the I mean, grit to keep and going forward. What you're saying is uh, completely makes sense because obviously, and not just in arts, when you work hard towards a vision or a goal or a craft, like you know, you hear these stories that people you know mm -hmm. get super successful after like I don't know practicing first short amount of time but basically when you work towards something the opportunities related to that will obviously you, you'll find them it's not universe or karma doing something it's just basically facts you know like i mean obviously of course if you're in the yeah. field of art you're going to eventually you know get you know these opportunities you know yes hopefully I mean, it's like the, a, a, a good, here's some like practical advice. Try getting your uh, search rating higher if you can. Like get things linked to your website. I mean, I know uh, that one project that I was talking about earlier with the kinetic flowers, the barometer for the energy usage of the building. I got that job because I was the first choice, or I mean, I was the first um, search that came up when I when um, they Googled Kinetic Artist Seattle. So then they looked at my work and they're like, hey, maybe this guy can do it. And so I just convinced them that I could. Awesome. And then I did it. And yeah, I mean, of course, having it, like, I mean, yeah. it's good to have a portfolio. Like, I'm not, I'm not really sure what is like a good platform yes. for a kinetic artist to have a portfolio on. I guess Instagram, Behance, I think those are, but I mean, those are usually for, you know, illustrators, you know. But I think definitely, regardless of mm -hmm. like what your um, design profession is, you definitely need a website and link your portfolios to that website. Like, I mean, it, it, it's a game changer. And um, what are you working on right now that you can tell us about? What kind of project, project is it? Of course, I mean, if it's something where there's an NDA involved, I mean, we can skip the question. No, I, no, I don't, I don't have any NDAs right now. Um, the project that I'm working on right now is um, a kinetic dress with Iris Van Herpen. So we'll see. Hopefully that'll work out. Um, and then we're just going to see what happens. Uh, I don't have any major things planned. I'm just kind of seeing how this exhibition goes. Maybe nothing will happen. Maybe everyone will be like, hey, this is the this is the end of my career i've peaked too early um probably not let's let's yeah. not put that into the universe 
Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I have ideas in the back of my head. I would really like to make a, um, a deep sea hydrothermal vent because I don't know. I just think that they're really fascinating. It's like this whole ecology that exists without the sun. I think that that's really um, interesting and kind of goes along with some of the things that I was talking about in Parable of Gravity and like what comes after the collapse and what hmm. life can look like. Awesome. And so, all right. The next question yeah. is kind of like we're getting kind of in by to the end of the podcast. And this is the question I like, well, okay, okay. I ask everyone and I always get very interesting answers to imagine right now. I'm, I'm just rephrasing the question, of course, right now. Imagine right now that you got a text and basically okay. it says that a million dollars has been deposited to your bank account, all right? What's going to happen? You're, you, of course, it's your mm. not you. It's going to make you not worry about bills anymore, you know, and stuff like that, you know, which eventually will mm. make you not, which eventually makes you in a state that you have a lot of free time, you know? And what skill or craft would you yeah. pursue in that free time? That's the question. Oh, yeah. Well, first, I would inve invest Bitcoin, everything Dogecoin. in the stock market right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that, all that. Uh, <laughs> this this fucking year for the stock market's been wild. Uh, anyway, uh, million dollars. Mm, I don't know. I mean, a million dollars is a lot of money, isn't it? But it's not like enough money to do like a really big thing. I feel I like I've talked with my partner about this before, you know, if I won like the mega millions, I would definitely build like a art center with like studio spaces and stuff like that. Some kind of like, I would want to build a building, like yeah, something true. that would have a legacy. Um, uh, that would be my, the thing if I had enough money, but I a mean, million I think do that. I'm sorry, not I for the scale the that question, I, but, uh, I, I didn't, mean, what would you do with a million dollar? I mean, <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. What skills would I learn? Um, well, I would go back to school. I would go back to school and learn how to do 3D print or do all the technology stuff and then probably finally get a usable studio space to put all those toys in. And, well, we've come to the last section of the podcast. With everything that's been said and done to conclude, I'll be discussed. Give us a roadmap for someone who is zero in visual arts and design and wants to get to the place you are in terms of skill sets. Like, for example, from zero to becoming an amateur kinetic sculptor. Give us a roadmap. Mm -hmm. Roadmap. Roadmap to becoming an amateur kinetic sculptor. I would pick up this book called uh, 501 Mechanical Motions. That would be a good place to start. Um, I would do as much investigating into other kinetic artists, um, other types of people doing work that you're interested in. Um, go to school if you can, if you can afford it, um, or do your own research, um, and then just keep making. Uh, and if your project fails, pick it up and do it again. All right, that that just sounds like a pretty straightforward answer. No, no, no. I, yeah, I don't, I don't, that was I don't bad, know like, how to answer it really because, because for a lot of other <laughs> stuff, like you have to learn the fundamentals of this or that, you know, but something like, you know, kinetic sculpting is it's because it's such a practical thing, you know, that's what I meant. Not 
that your answer was, mm-hmm. but your answer was pretty perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, that was interesting. All right. Uh, yeah. And we've yeah. come to the end of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you to, to everyone who's been watching and listening. And is, by the way, where can people contact you if they had any questions or? Yeah, they could. Um, you can contact me through my website. The best, uh, it would mm-hmm. be best to contact me through my website rather than my email because I get little uh, notifications mm-hmm. saying that it's art related. So go to caseycurren.com. Yeah, that's C A S E Y C U. Oh, okay. You put it in the caption. I'm going right. to spell it out. <laughs> and well, there we have it, folks. We've, we've come to the end of the episode and see you, see you all in the next episode. Have a good day. Bye.